Well, we have entered a time of year when it is planting time. Gardens are being uh, planted, and uh, before too long, you might begin to see in larger gardens even a few scarecrows to scare the birds away. But do they really scare the birds away? I mean, obviously, a scarecrow is not able to hurt the birds. But do the birds know that? Well, most don't know that, but I do recall a story about a man who was walking by a strawberry patch and he saw all these birds on the power lines on either side of the strawberry patch, but right in the middle of the strawberry patch, sitting on the scarecrow, were two birds resting between meals. So obviously they had gotten the point that there was nothing about that scarecrow that could really do them harm. Now what does that have to do with the lesson this morning? Well, it has everything to do with the scarecrows of the mind. Are we up there? No, we're not. But soon we will be, hopefully. There we go. That'll help a lot, I do believe. Scarecrows of the mind. You see the two birds in the graphic sitting on the head of the scarecrow because they realize there's nothing about that scarecrow that can do them any harm. Well, this morning I want us to discuss spiritual scarecrows. That is, those things in our lives that can scare us away from involvement in the work of the Lord. The things that can rob us of service and deprive us of joy. The greatest joy that one can experience. And that is the joy of using our talents to the fullest extent. And as we think about it, our text comes from Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. And I invite you to turn with me to what is commonly known as the parable of the talents. The parable of the talents. And of course, our concentration will be upon the one-talent man. The one-talent man who, who had some scarecrows in his life that we must make sure never enter our lives. Of course, you know that this is a parable about the kingdom of heaven. It's a parable about the church of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ because the kingdom is the church and the church is the kingdom. And Jesus says here, the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country. Who is that man traveling to a far country? Jesus. He is the man who has traveled to that far country even now he is in that far country. In other words, this depicts the Lord ascending back to the Father in heaven and being now, even now, at the right hand of, of the throne of God. Just as he told the disciples in John 14, beginning at verse 1, when he said to them, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Behold, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Well, he has gone there. But before he went there, he gave this parable about the time that he would go back to the Father in heaven. But his having gone to the Father in heaven involves something that the servants in this parable 
were to be involved in doing while he was away and before he comes again, as he promised in John 14 and in many other passages. And so he called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, a measure of of money, to another two, and to another one. But notice this, to each according to his own ability. There we immediately see the fairness of God depicted here. God does not, nor has he ever, or will he ever expect more of you and me than we are capable of giving, and he knows what we're capable of. We just have to make sure that we know what we're capable of and that that is in harmony with what God knows. And that will be much of the thrust of our lesson about the one-talent man this morning. Each according to his ability, and immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the so, those servants came and settled accounts with them. The Lord of the servants came. Now notice something else here. After a long time. You know, there were those in Peter's day, and he wrote about them, who said, where is the promise of his coming? After all, look at how things are continuing today, just as they always have. And there are those today, the uniformitarians, who will tell us that things have always existed as they are now. They'll continue to exist. Well, that's false on its face, because uh, catastrophes have occurred, and uh, uniformitarianism has been disproved uh, long ago by the universal flood and many other things that have occurred. Things don't always go along as they always have. And the promise of his coming... The one who went into that far country to the throne of God and is even now reigning over his kingdom, the church, at the right hand of the throne of God, he will certainly come again. But notice the parable says after a long time. It does not purport to tell us a specific time in which the Lord will return as this parable represents the Lord. And as we have often said, there have been predictors who have come and gone but the Lord still has not come. That is, predictors who have tried to tell us exactly when the Lord was coming again. And tragically, they've based those predictions on a false interpretation of passages such as the early part of Matthew chapter 24, when the Lord talked about signs about the coming of the destruction of Jerusalem. But in verse 36 of Matthew 24, he said, But of that day and hour, no one knows. What day and hour? the day and hour of the Lord's return. And that phrase, after a long time, simply reminds us that we do not know when the Lord is coming again. He may come before we die. He may come thousands of years after we have gone on into eternity. But it matters not. Our responsibility is to be prepared every moment of time for His coming or for our death, whichever occurs first. And so after a long time, the Lord of those servants came, which tells us He is coming. He will come again. And whether we have died before He comes makes no difference in terms of the accountability 
that we will give as our bodies are raised and reunited with our spirits and as we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, incidentally a judgment scene that is depicted in verse 31 beginning of this chapter immediately after this parable, he speaks about that judgment scene and the separation of the sheep and the goats, the faithful, the unfaithful, the good and the bad. It is certain, Hebrews 9:27. it's appointed unto men to die once. And after this, the judgment. His coming is certain. So what is incumbent upon us in light of that certainty? What's incumbent upon us in light of that certainty is to be prepared. To be prepared. Because he's going to settle accounts. And each one will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.10. And each one individually will give account of himself to God. We will give account of the deeds done in the body, Paul says there in that passage, whether good or bad. Well, the five-talent man, when he came to settle accounts with his master, brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I've gained five more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And that expression, enter into the joy of your Lord, transforms us to a time or gives us a transition into time when time is no more and the joy of the Lord will be entered by those who've been faithful during this period of time, this testing period, if you will, here on earth. It's obvious from that expression, enter into the joy of your Lord, that we're speaking about a heavenly reward, eternal in the heavens for those who were faithful. But what about the two-talent man? He who also had received two talents, verse 22, came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents besides them. Did the Lord say to him, well, I'm sorry, but you should have gained as many as the five-talent man gained? No, he didn't. He said to the two-talent man who had gained only two additional talents, he said to him exactly what he said to the five-talent man, who had gained five. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Clearly showing us that indeed all of us have been given responsibilities if we indeed purport to be the servants of the Lord. And that it is incumbent upon us to fulfill those responsibilities to the fullest extent of our ability and only to the full extent of our ability. God is fair. God does not require of us more than we are truly capable of giving. But we need to make sure that we don't underestimate what we're capable of giving. And then we come to the one talent man. What if he had come to his master to settle accounts and had said to him, Lord, you gave me one. I gain one other. You and I both know that the words to him would have been the very same words that were spoken to the two-talent man and to the five-talent man. They would have been well done, good and faithful servant. Because the Lord gave those talents to those men according to their ability, and he expected them to produce according to their ability. Not unrealistically, but fairly. And realistically. But what did this one talent man say? Lord, I knew you to be a hard man. That's verse 24. 
reaping where you have not sown, and gathering where you have not scattered seed. Ah, the first scarecrow rears its head. The scarecrow of supposition. That was an immediate problem that he had. Verse 24 reveals it. Lord, I knew you. Did he? Did he? No, not really. Has the Lord in this parable been unfair in regard to the two-talent man or the five-talent man? No, he didn't say to the two-talent man, you didn't gain as many as the five-talent man, and I'm a hard man, and because I'm a hard man, a hard master, you're going to pay the price. No, he was very fair in his dealings. And when we understand and appreciate that the master in this parable represents the master in heaven, then we understand the Lord is going to be fair. But the scarecrow of supposition, supposing his master to be something that he was not, was the problem. The scarecrow of supposition. Supposing his master to be hard, unjust, but he was not. Go back to verse 15. According to his ability. Showing again the fairness of God. Now, let me ask you this. How do we view our master? How do we view the one who gave this parable as he lived among men? How do we view the Lord Jesus Christ? How do we view the God of this universe? Do we trust him to help us overcome our fears? To dispel our doubts under every circumstance? Do we trust him? Do we believe with the psalmist of old? God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Psalm 46, verses 1 and 2. Do we believe with David in that beautiful and well-familiar psalm, the shepherd psalm, that the Lord is our shepherd and that we shall not want, that he does make us to lie down in green pastures, that he does lead us beside the still waters, that he does lead us in the paths of righteousness through his all-sufficient word, and on and on in that beautiful psalm, culminating with the expression of confidence that I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It is that kind of view of the God of heaven, the nature of that God, that will keep us from falling into the supposition into which this one-talent man fell, it'll keep that scarecrow, if you will, out of our lives. There's so many today with a, with a skewed picture of God. They see God as a God of goodness and nothing more. A God who could not possibly, because of his goodness, condemn anyone to a devil's hell. Send one to hell. And as we have said before, God doesn't send anyone to hell. Man makes that choice. But God, because he is a God of justice as well as goodness, is going to allow that to occur because his justice must be satisfied as well as his mercy. And until his justice was satisfied by Jesus Christ and his death upon Calvary, God could not extend his mercy. His justice demanded the perfect sacrifice, and therefore his mercy and love gave us 
his only begotten Son. Therefore, consider the goodness and the severity of God. Don't you wish people would take that passage in Romans eleven twenty two to heart? Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God. Towards you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Toward those who fell, what? Condemnation. But towards you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. There's the key. Towards you, goodness, if you what? If you continue in his goodness. There's a part that I must play. God is not going to save everyone. He's going to save those who comply with his will. His will as revealed to us beautifully and perfectly and sinlessly in the Son of God who became flesh and dwelt among men and who showed us the Father in heaven. If man today has a skewed impression or picture of the God of heaven, it's man's fault, not God's. Because God sent Jesus to show us the Father, didn't he? And you remember in John chapter 14 and verse 9 when Philip said to the Lord Jesus Christ, Show us the Father and it'll be sufficient for us. And you remember what the Lord's response to Philip was? Philip, Philip, have I been with you so long? And have you not known me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? The Father has been revealed. And this one-talent man should never have supposed his master, to be something he was not. Let us never suppose God to be someone he is not. Let us determine to learn of him. Let us determine to trust him. And let us determine to use our talents for him to the fullest extent. But there was a second scarecrow in the mind of the one-talent man. And it was the scarecrow of small thinking. He said what? And I was afraid. I was afraid. The scarecrow of small thinking. Thinking too small about his own abilities. Thinking too small about what he could achieve by doing something. But by doing that with his master on his side. Are we guilty of the same kind of small thinking today? We must never be. Are we without vision? Are we without dreams as individuals? Are we without vision as a congregation? Are we without vision or dreams in that congregational respect? No, I think not. Not here at White Oak, and I thank God for that. We must always maintain that vision. We must always keep the dream of God alive. Yes, God had a dream, didn't it? God had a dream, and that dream is expressed, as we have said more than once in 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's the dream of God. How big is God's dream? How big is God's dream? It's big, isn't it? 
the desire, the dream, if you will, that all men would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth? More than seven billion people alive today on planet Earth, and yet the dream of God is the same today as it was when that population was minuscule by comparison. His dream then, his dream now, is that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. I can't, I can't talk about dreaming without thinking about Barry Gilreath Sr. And I remember at the dedication of the GBN building in, in Memphis recently, Barry Jr. talked about his father's dreams. And he said, my dad had big dreams. He didn't just have little dreams. He had big dreams. And the Gospel Broadcasting Network was one of those big dreams. And good news today, that program that was a part of GBN, but now separate and under White Oaks oversight, that was Barry's dream. That format, that unique format, that was his dream. We can put together a magazine format. We can put together a network. Why did he dream big? Because he didn't think small because he recognized that if we do it God's way and if it is God's will, then that dream can become a reality. And Paul expressed it so succinctly by inspiration in Philippians 4.13 when he said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What is our dream for the church at White Oak. We must put our talents to use to make it come true. And all of us must continue to utilize our talents to the fullest extent. Do we live in challenging times for the church? Oh, indeed we do. Uh, is there much about which to be concerned and, and discouraged? Oh, yes. Could we, could we be in despair? about what is happening in the world if we choose to be in despair. We could if we would allow ourselves to go there, but we can't allow ourselves to do that. Oh yes, we need to realize the challenges we face, but then we need to face them and believe that with God's help that ultimately we are the victors. Who was it that said recently that if you summarize the book of Revelation after it's all said and done and everything is, is gone through there in the book of Revelation and all the, the symbols and all the signs. What do you get? What is the conclusion that we reach after we get through the book of Revelation? The conclusion is we win. We win. Satan works all through our lives, but we win if we are not guilty of the scarecrow of supposition or the scarecrow of small thinking or another one we find, and that is the scarecrow of satisfaction. Just becoming self-satisfied. And that's what you have in verse 25, the latter part of the verse. What did he say? Here it is. I've preserved it beautifully for you. It's just like it was when you gave it to me. And it is yours. And one can almost hear the tone with which the one-talent man gave back the one talent that had been given to him as though his master should have been satisfied. Look here. Look at what kind of shape this talent's in. It's as 
beautiful as the first day you gave it to me, and here it is. I have taken good care of it. Had he done anything actively wrong with that talent? No. He had not done anything actively wrong with that talent. But he had not any done anything good with it either. And it reminds us that there are sins of omission as well as sins of commission. And we need to make sure we're not guilty of either. We also need to realize that from this parable, we can glean a very exciting thought. And that thought is this. Our talents can be multiplied if we use them. They can be multiplied, but lost if we abuse them. Lost if we abuse them. And so we dare not become satisfied. There must always be in the life of every child of God, at whatever age, younger Christian, all the way up to older Christian, there must always be in every child of God a healthy dissatisfaction. A healthy dissatisfaction. And that's important to put the word healthy there. Not just dissatisfaction, but a healthy dissatisfaction. We cannot be content to drift along. That cannot be. Remember what Paul wrote in Philippians 3, 13 and 14. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I am pressing on the upward way, as we sing in that great old hymn. New heights I'm gaining every day. That should be the attitude. If Paul had to keep moving forward, as he expressed in that passage, then what about me? What about you? Can we do less? Well, those are the scarecrows. Scarecrow of supposition, scarecrow of small thinking, the scarecrow of satisfaction, self-satisfaction, being satisfied with, with basically just preserving and keeping the status quo, status quo. And how did the master react? How did the master react? That's crucial. He didn't say, oh, well, I'm glad it's in good shape and I appreciate what you've done in keeping it for me. He didn't lose it. No, he said, what? You wicked and lazy servant. The King James says, slothful. The supposition and the small thinking and the satisfaction led to slothfulness. You ever seen a picture of a sloth? They look pretty lazy, don't they? <laughs> they look pretty lazy. And that's exactly what he characterizes this wicked servant as being. Slothful. But notice not just slothful, not just lazy, but he adds the word wicked. Wicked. While the man hadn't gone out and done something terrible with the money, he had not uh, spent it on uh, strong drink, he had not been uh, uh, guilty of involved in, in any illicit way with anyone else in any kind of deal or whatever, but he is characterized as wicked, lazy, 
and wicked. Let me ask you, do you think the one-talent man looked at himself that way? I dare say he did not. As we said, you could almost hear the tone, look, here it is, you've got what is yours. Do you think he anticipated this kind of response? No. And yet that's what he got. Would the servant have looked at himself in that same way? No, but that's the key. It is not how we look at ourselves that counts. It's how God looks at us. And someone says, well, how can I, how can I know how God looks at me? I can know how God looks at me. Not through some better felt than told experience. No. Where I justify and rationalize because I believe that I have uh, the Holy Spirit in some direct miraculous way who's guiding me and leading me so I don't have to be concerned about what is revealed to me in the Word of God. No, the only way that God has said that He is going to tell us how He looks at us is through what He has revealed to us in His Word because the Holy Spirit has revealed His Word to us in its full and complete form. It is inspired, every word of it, and the only way that we can know and need to know how God looks at us is right here in his final revelation of his will to us. Oh yes, we can rationalize our inactivity in a number of ways. We can say, well, look, look what I've done in the past. Let someone else do it now. Time for me to rest. We've talked about this before. I remember years ago talking to a, um, a preacher up in Michigan. And he said the church is struggling here in this area where he is. And he said, you know, one of the greatest problems we have in the church is that we have so many older members who say, let someone else do it. I've, I've, I've been involved in this or that for years. It's time to let somebody else do it. Needing desperately the talents of those older Christians, this preacher was lamenting the fact that he didn't have those talents available in many cases. Now, I've said before, and I'll say it again, I am thankful for the utilization of the talents of our older members here at White Oak. And it is a blessing to the church here, and it is a wonderful and beautiful example to everyone younger in the faith to see how active our older members are here at White Oak. Because they recognize that the Lord said through the Hebrews writer, let us labor to enter into that rest, Hebrews 4.11. Not let us rest to enter into that rest, but let us labor to enter in to that rest. Well, what were the results of the one-talent man's failure? He robbed himself of his reward. Robbed of his reward. Robbed of his talent. Lord said, take it away, give it to the five-talent man, verse 28 of the parable. Luke chapter 12, verse 48, is pertinent at this point in our study. There the Lord said, but he who did not know, yet committed things worthy of stripe, shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required, and to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. He knew his master's will, but he didn't do it. He was robbed of his reward. 
He was robbed of the joy that comes from service in the kingdom now and from eternity with the Master. All of us have spiritual scarecrows. The devil tries to use them to his advantage, but they cannot hurt us. See the birds sitting on top of the head of the scarecrow? They cannot hurt us. And James reminds us in James 4, 7, Therefore submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. He can't hurt you unless you let him hurt you. If we resist them, they'll go away. You know, as we close our thoughts this morning, we need to be reminded that there is joy beyond description in God's garden of service. Realized to its fullest, realized to its fullest, that joy is, when we have the talents that God has given us, recognize that we have them, we do, and use them to the fullest extent. I've said before in reference to this parable, you'll never find in this parable the no-talent man. He's not there. The no-talent man does not exist. You have ability. If you'll use it, it'll multiply. If you don't, you'll lose it. And it equates to the loss of your eternal soul. Let me ask you, in closing... Are there some scarecrows in the minds of some here this morning who have not yet become Christians? What are the scarecrows that are keeping you from believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, John 8, 24, and based upon that belief, moving forward to repent of your sins, that is to change your mind about where you are and then to determine to change where you are? Luke 13, 3, and again at verse 5, Jesus said, repent or perish. What is the scarecrow that is keeping you from confessing with your lips and then living thereafter with your life that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Matthew 10, 32, confess me, Jesus said, and I'll confess you. And what is the scarecrow that keeps you from bridging, from bridging the water's edge, as it were, and going down into the waters of baptism to be buried there with your Lord cleansed therein by his blood that is applied in that burial, just as he so clearly and succinctly said we must do when he said he who believes and is baptized will be saved. Oh, there are scarecrows that are keeping a lot of people out of the waters of baptism, but they're scarecrows of the mind that Satan has placed there. They're not here in the word of God. Rid yourself of those scarecrows if you need to this morning and come to the Lord in obedience to the gospel or come home to him if you're a wayward child who has allowed the scarecrows of the mind to affect your service to him, and because of that influence of Satan, your life is not what it once was, and the sin in your life that has entered needs to be confessed and repented of publicly, then we plead with you to do that. If it's private, rid yourself of the scarecrow privately and take care of it between you and God. But if there's something public in your life that needs to be confessed and repented of, we'll pray with you and for you as a wayward child so that you can leave here no longer as a wayward child, but as a restored child of God, faithful in his service 
and anticipating one day the same words we've read twice here in this parable. Well done, good and faithful servant. Will you come as we stand to sing?